This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello, and here are some witnesses of history from middle to late March. And we start in 1899 on the 20th of March with W.H. Davis jumping a train in Canada. The snow was still deep and the mornings and evenings cold when a week after we reached Ottawa. The slow travelling was not at all to my liking and I often persuaded my companion to make more haste towards Winnipeg. This he agreed to do, so the next morning we jumped a freight train determined to hold it for the whole day. Unfortunately, it was simply a local train and being very slow, having to stop on the way at every insignificant little station, we left it at a town called Renfrew, intending that night to be the fast overland passenger train, which would convey us four or five hundred miles before daybreak. With this object, we sat in the station's waiting room until evening and then, some 20 minutes before the train became due, we slipped out unobserved and took possession of an empty car, stationary some distance away, from which place we could see the train coming and yet be unseen from the station's platform. This train would soon arrive, for passengers were already pacing the platform. The luggage was placed in readiness and a number of curious people, having nothing else to do, had assembled here to see the coming and going of the train. At last, we heard its whistle, and looking out, we saw the headlight in the distance drawing nearer and nearer. It steamed into the station without making much noise, for the rails were slippery, there still being much ice and snow on the track. Come, I said to Jack, there is no time to lose, and we quickly jumped out of the empty car. The fast passenger train carried a blind baggage car, which means that the end nearest to the engine was blind in having no door. Our object was to suddenly appear from a hiding place, darkness being favourable, and leap onto the step of this car and from that place to the platform, this being done when the train was in motion, knowing that the conductor, who was always on the watch for such doings, rarely stopped the train to put men off, even when sure of their presence. If he saw us before the train started, he would certainly take means to prevent us from riding. When we had t- once taken possession of this car, no man could approach us until we reached the next stopping place, which would probably be 50 miles or much more. At that place we would dismount, conceal ourselves, and, when it was again in motion, make another leap for our former place. Of course, the engineer and fireman could reach us, but these men were always indifferent and never interfered, their business being ahead instead of behind the engine. The train whistled almost before we were ready and pulled slowly out of the station. I allowed my companion the advantage of being the first to jump, owing to his maimed hand. The train was now going faster and faster and we were forced to keep pace with it. Making a leap, he caught the handlebar and sprang lightly on the step, after which my hand quickly took possession of this bar and I ran with the train prepared to follow his example. To my surprise, instead of at once taking his place on the platform, my companion stood thoughtlessly irresolute on the step, leaving me no room to make the attempt. But I still held to the bar, though the train was now going so fast that I found great difficulty in keeping step with it. I shouted him to clear the step. This he proceeded to do very deliberately, I thought. Taking a firmer grip on the bar, I jumped, but it was too late for the train was now going at a rapid rate. My foot came short of the step and I fell and, still clinging to the handlebar, 
was dragged several yards before I relinquished my hold, and there I lay for several minutes feeling a little shaken whilst the train passed swiftly on into the darkness. Even then, I didn't know what had happened, for I attempted to stand but found that something had happened to prevent me from doing this. Sitting down in an upright position, I then began to examine myself and now found that the right foot was severed from the ankle. This discovery does not shock me so much as the thoughts which quickly followed, for as I could feel no pain, I did not know but what my body was in several parts, and I was not satisfied until I examined every portion of it. Seeing a man crossing the track, I shouted to him for assistance. He looked in one direction and another, not seeing me in the darkness, and was going his way when I shouted again. This time he looked full my way, but instead of coming nearer, he made one bound in the air, nearly fell, scrambled to his feet, and was off like the shot from a gun. This man was sought after for several weeks by people curious to know who he was, but he was never found, and no man came forward to say, I am he. Having failed to find this man, people at last began to think I was under a ghostly impression. Probably that was the other man's impression, for whoever saw pity make the same speed as fear. Another man, after this, approached, who was a workman on the line, and at the sound of my voice he seemed to understand at once what had happened. Coming forward quickly, he looked me over, went away, and a minute or two later returned with the assistance of several others to convey me to the station. A number of people were still there, so that when I was placed in the waiting room to bide the arrival of a doctor, I could see no other way of keeping a calm face before such a number of eyes than by taking out my pipe and smoking, an action which, I am told, caused much sensation in the local press. And now we go to March the 23rd in 1920 for a short report from the Daily Telegraph from Dublin on Monday midnight. Three civilians were shot and are reported to be dead as the result of a collision tonight between a party of soldiers who, after leaving one of the theatres in Dublin, were singing God Save the King in a Dublin street and a number of civilians. It is not yet known if any of the soldiers were injured. The Central News Dublin correspondent telegraphs there were riotous scenes which took place in Dublin when about 300 or 400 soldiers paraded the streets around 8.30 singing songs and behaving in a threatening manner to passers-by. They had been attending the Theatre Royal where boisterous scenes occurred. After passing along Camden Street, doors were struck and windows broken. Then the soldiers paraded Harcourt Street and returned to Portobello Bridge near the barracks. A large crowd of civilians had gathered by this time and a conflict seemed inevitable when a volley was fired by the soldiers from the bridge over the crowd of civilians. In Richmond Street, two men were shot dead and four wounded seriously and taken to Leith Hospital. Shortly afterwards, the soldiers returned to the barracks. Individual soldiers returning were roughly handled. So far, no other casualties are reported. And now still from the Telegraph, from 1960, reports of the Sharpville Massacre in South Africa. This is from the Daily Telegraph Special Correspondent in Johannesburg, March the 22nd, 1960. Shooting by South African police on the first day of a campaign by Africans against the pass laws which required them to carry identity cards today ended in the deaths of 63 men, women and children and a further 191 were wounded. 
The worst outbreak was in the African township of Sharpville near Viringing, Witwatersrand, where the treaty ending the Boer War was signed. 75 white police besieged in the police station fired on thousands of demonstrators, killing 56 and wounding 162. As news of the heavy casualties spread, disorders were feared in other areas. Tonight, police fired on Africans in the township of Langer, near Cape Town, killing six, wounding 30, of whom one died later in hospital. The crowd was said by an eyewitness to have gone berserk after the firing. Several buildings, including the admin centre, schools and shops, were stated to be on fire. Today's demonstrations were organised by the Pan-Africanist Congress, a militant offshoot of the African National Congress. It called on its 31,000 members to leave their passes at home and to surrender at police stations. The African National Congress disassociated itself from the campaign. In a statement to Parliament, Dr Verwood, the Prime Minister, said Mr Robert Sabuka, President of the Pan-Africanists and other leaders of the movement, had been arrested. The position was now under control, he said. Anger over the pass system, which insists that every African carries a pass and renders him liable to imprisonment if caught moving from his prescribed locality to another in search of work, is long pent up. The alternative of freedom of movement, however, might produce mass descents on cities without prospect of work. According to the police spokesman at Sharpville, about 15,000 Africans surrounded the police station. The 75 armed policemen defending it were formed in single line. Shots were first fired, the police alleged, by the Africans, who also stoned them. It was then, police admit, that the order was given to fire. From the following day... March the 23rd, 1960, the Telegraph reporter writes, About 600 people demonstrated outside South Africa House in Trafalgar Square, London, at midday yesterday over Monday's killing of Africans campaigning against the pass laws requiring them to carry identity cards. Several shouts of murder were heard from the crowd. A woman tried to deliver a letter to Dr Van Rijn, the High Commissioner, but the commissioner refused to accept it. The total of African dead rose yesterday to 72, with 211 wounded. And from our own Washington correspondent, the State Department today came very close to rebuking publicly the South African authorities for the deaths and injuries among Africans during yesterday's demonstrations. Mr White, official spokesman, read a statement presumably drafted at a high level in the department. It said... The United States deplores violence in all its forms and hopes that the African people of South Africa will be able to obtain redress of their legitimate grievances by peaceful means. While the United States, as a matter of practice, does not ordinarily comment on the internal affairs of governments with which it enjoys normal relations, it cannot help but regret the tragic loss of life resulting from the measures taken against the demonstrators in South Africa. And we conclude this episode going back to March 1912 for extracts for Cap from Captain Scott's Polar Expedition Diary. Scott and his four remaining companions had reached the South Pole on 18th of January only to find that Roald Amundsen had preceded them by about a month. On 12th of November 1912, searchers found the tent with the frozen bodies in it. Their impressions were the seductive folds of the sleeping bag, the hiss of the primus and the fragrant steam of the cooker issuing from the tent ventilator, 
the small green tent and the great white road, the whine of a dog and the neigh of our steeds, the driving cloud of powdered snow, the crunch of footsteps which break the surface crust, the wind-blown furrows, the blue arch beneath the smoky cloud, the crisp ring of the pony's hoofs and the swish of the following sledge, the droning conversation of the march as driver encourages or chides his horse, the patter of dog pads, the gentle flutter of our canvas shelter, its deep booming sound under the full force of a blizzard, the drift snow like the finest flower penetrating every hole and corner, flickering up beneath one's head covering, pricking sharply as a sandblast, the sun with blurred image peeping shyly through the wreathing drift, giving pale shadowless light, the eternal silence of the great white desert, cloudy columns of snow drift advancing from the south, pale yellow wraiths heralding the coming storm, blotting out one by one the sharp-cut lines of the land. And now, extracts from Scott's diary. Friday the 16th of March, or maybe the Saturday the 17th. I've lost track of dates, but think the last is correct. Tragedy all along the line. At lunch, the day before yesterday, poor Titus Oates said he couldn't go on. He proposed we should leave him in his sleeping bag, that we, that we could not do, and induced him to come on, on the afternoon march. In spite of its awful nature for him, he struggled on, and we made a few miles. At night, he was worse, and we knew the end had come. Should this be found, I want these facts recorded. Oates's last thoughts were of his mother, but immediately before he took pride in thinking that his regiment would be pleased with the bold way in which he met his death. We can testify to his bravery. He was born in tense suffering for weeks without complaint, and to the very last was able and willing to discuss outside subjects. He did not, would not, give up hope to the very end. He was a brave soul. This was the end. He slept through the night before last, hoping not to wake, but he woke in the morning, yesterday. It was blowing a blizzard. He said, I'm just going outside, and maybe some time. He went out into the blizzard, and we have not seen him since. I take this opportunity of saying that we have stuck to our sick companions to the last. In case of Edgar Evans, when absolutely out of food and he lay insensible, the safety of the remainder seemed to demand his abandonment. But Providence mercifully removed him at this critical moment. He died a natural death, and we did not leave him till two hours after his death. We knew that poor Oates was walking to his death, but though we tried to dissuade him, we knew it was the act of a brave man and an English gentleman. We all hope to meet the end with a similar spirit, and assuredly, the end is not far. I can only write at lunch, and then only occasionally. The cold is intense, minus 40 degrees at midday. My companions are unendingly cheerful, but we are all on the verge of serious frostbites, and though we constantly talk of fetching through, I don't think any one of us believes it in his heart. We are cold on the march now, and at all times except meals. Yesterday we had to lay up for a blizzard, and today we move dreadfully slowly. We are at number 14 Pony Camp, only two pony marches from one ton depot. We leave here our theodolite, a camera, and Oates' sleeping bags, diaries for etc., and geological specimens carried at Wilson's special request will be found with us on our sledge. Saturday, the 18th of March. Today, at lunch, we are 21 miles from the depot. Ill fortune presses, 
but better may come. We've had more wind and drift from ahead yesterday. Had to stop marching. Wind northwest forced for temperature minus 35. No human being could face it, and we are worn out nearly. My right foot has gone, nearly all the toes. Two days ago, I was proud possessor of best feet. These are the steps of my downfall. Like an ass, I mixed a small spoonful of curry powder with my melted pemmican. It gave me violent indigestion. I lay awake and in pain all night, woke and felt done on the march. Foot went, and I didn't know it. A very small measure of neglect, and have a foot which is not pleasant to contemplate. Boas takes first place in condition, but there is not much to choose, after all. The others are still confident of getting through, or pretend to be. I don't know. We have the last half fill of oil in our primus, and a very small quantity of spirit, this alone between us, and thirst. The wind is fair for the moment, and that is perhaps a fact to help. The mileage would have seemed ridiculously small on our outward journey. Monday, 19th of March. Lunch. We camped with difficulty last night and were dreadfully cold till after our supper of cold pemmican and biscuit and half a pannikin of cocoa cooked over the spirit. Then, contrary to expectation, we got warm and all slept well. Today we started in the usual dragging manner, sledge dreadfully heavy. We are 15 and a half miles from the depot and ought to get there in three days. What progress. We have two days' food, but barely a day's fuel. All our feet are getting bad. Wilson's best, my right foot worst, left all right. There is no chance to nurse one's feet till we can get hot food into us. Amputation is the least I can hope for now. But will the trouble spread? That is the serious question. The weather doesn't give us a chance. The wind from north to northwest and minus 40 degrees temperature today. Wednesday, 21st of March. Got within 11 miles of depot Monday night. Had to lay up all yesterday in severe blizzard. Today, forlorn hope. Wilson and Bowers going to depot for fuel. Thursday, 22nd and 23rd March. Blizzard bad as ever. Wilson and Bowers were unable to start. Tomorrow's the last chance. No fuel and only one or two bowls of food left. Must be near the end. Have decided it shall be natural. We shall march for the depot with or without our effects and die in our tracks. Thursday, the 29th of March. Since the 21st, we have had a continuous gale from west-south-west and south-west. We had fuel to make two cups of tea apiece and have bare food for two days on the 20th. Every day, we have been ready to start for our depot 11 miles away, but outside the door of the tent, it remains a scene of whirling drift. I do not think we can hope for any better things now. We shall stick it out to the end, but we are getting weaker, and of course, the end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I do not think I can write more. Ask Scott. For God's sake, look after our people. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias, www dot soundimage dot org